Amen, amen. What was Enoch's message? Do you remember? Enoch's message was the Lord is coming, right? The Lord is coming. That's what Jude 14 and 15 says, that Enoch was a man who preached the Lord is coming. As you take out your Bibles and you get ready for your notes, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis 5. And then we're going into chapter 6. Thank you, praise team. Thank you for entering into worship with us. Just a little um, a little hint, if you've not caught it in the last few weeks, I think we've mentioned it, but only slightly two weeks from today, June the 5th, don't walk in here at 1030 because no one will be in here. We'll be right there at 10 o'clock. We'll be right there at 10 o'clock. So, and we will need some help maybe setting up. So if you want to ask some of the, the guys in the sound booth, ask Josh, um, ask, uh, ask Logan um, what you can do to help. We will probably be doing some setting up early. And it will be a BYOP, bring your own picnic, okay? So it will bring your own picnic that day. But we will worship outside Um, We're not making a big flash advertisement about it, but certainly tell your friends and it's kind of our first time to do it. And so we're going to do it on the 5th and we're going to kind of make it a live practice, if you will. And hopefully we'll gather some folks that just are out there. We'll kind of slip in with us. And then just as as a spoiler alert, then on September the 11th, the second Sunday in September, we will be doing it again and we will make a big splash about that one. So Two weeks, not next week, next week come in here, but two weeks from today, we will be out there. So Genesis 5, where we left off last week, talking about Enoch and and his son Methuselah. And if you remember, uh, the name Methuselah means that when when he is gone, it will come. And Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years and then he died. And Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son and he named him Noah. This one will bring us relief. That's what Lamech said. From the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground, the Lord is cursed. Lamech lived 569 years after he fathered Noah and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech lived 774 years, and then he died. Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let me stop right there. What did Jesus say about when he would give us the Holy Spirit? The night before he was crucified in John 16, verse 8, Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Second Peter 2 5 says about Noah that he was a preacher of righteousness. Now, Hebrews eleven seven, speaking about Noah, says that by faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So the message of Enoch was what? 
the Lord is coming. Somebody's paying attention to me now. Come on, Sean. It's really good to see you. The Lord is coming. So the message is that sin is our problem. And that righteousness is required. And we know already that the tempter had been judged in Genesis 3 for his rebellion, but he has continued to lead a rebellion, has he not? And in these days, he had continued to lead a rebellion. But the message of the second coming and the judgment that will follow is not just a not just a statement of future reality. Listen very closely. This is so important. If you miss this, you're going to miss the whole point today. Yes, it is a judgment. It is a message that judgment is coming, but that message that judgment is coming is an invitation. It's an invitation to life. Henry Blackaby in 1990 wrote the book Experiencing God. Some of you have probably read it and been through it. The book was transformational for Lisa and I back in the 90s. And an updated release, by the way, has just come out that his sons and grandson have put together. Maybe we'll look at it in the coming days. Blackaby offers seven realities about experiencing God. Let me just summarize them for you. He says that God is always at work and that God pursues a love relationship with us and that God invites us to join him and that God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit, by prayer, by circumstances, by the Bible, by the church to reveal himself and his work and that God's invitation always, number five, leads us to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Six, he says then that we have to make major adjustments in our life. And then seven, he says, then we come to know God by experience as we obey him. When God reveals what he is doing, he is inviting us to life. Say life. Life. And if we will hear his call and respond in faith, we can experience life. So These next several weeks, as we look at the Noah story, certainly it is a historic event, not just historical, but historic, unprecedented event. We're going to look at the flood, but sometimes we only see the big event. We see the flood in the story, but I want us to see the possibility. I want us to see the person. I want us to see the plan. Remember that God has made a promise in chapter 3, verse 15, that the offspring of the woman will defeat the tempter. That's an amen spot right there. You missed it. That we would see him come through Eve's line, and now we're finding out. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, which line did Jesus come from? Do we know? And I said, of course we know. It's Seth. And Seth's been introduced to us. And so in this world now that we're seeing divided between self-worshippers in the line of Cain and God-worshippers in the line of Seth, in, in that divided world, look with me at the first six verses. We're going to kind of walk our way down through here of chapter 6. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took 
any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old. Look, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Let's stop right there. Let's address the problem that led to the flood. And there's one major contributing factor in here, and it's number one, write down, unequally yoked. You heard that phrase before? Unequally yoked. When I was growing up, that term, we used that term in dating relationships, rightly so. But it really is a term in, in, in Paul's writings referring to business relationships. Unequally yoked, Second Corinthians 6, 14 to 16 says, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or, he says, light have with darkness. Verse 15, he says, Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We. That's you, that's me, that, that claim Jesus Christ as Lord or indwelt by His Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. Now, if you're going to plow a field, if you're going to pull a load, you need two compatible workers, right? A wildcat and a workhorse can't be yoked together. An oxen and an old dog can't pull a plow. And some of you went, that's why I don't pull a plow anymore. There, there is an instruction to Israel when they are coming to the promised land to not intermarry with those who lived in Canaan. Why? Now, let's just be honest right here. This ver- those verses have been misused over the years in reference to multi-ethnic marriages, and that is not what this is about. It's never what it was about. Because the truth is that the Canaanites were of the same line as the Israelites. They were all children of Noah. Down through Abraham, even today, Jews and Arabs are descended from the same DNA. This instruction is about being unequally yoked in regards to who we worship. That's what it's talking about. So what was happening here, write this down, is there was a merger of the godly and the worldly. That's what we're talking about here. Now, I don't have time to take you through all of this stuff. And some of you, you know, when you first read the beginning of Genesis 6 and you see the gods of men and the gods of, uh, uh, I mean, the sons of God and the daughters of man and your mind is racing all over the place and, and you can do a lot of reading on this the sons of God, the daughters of men. But let me say this, about which I'm personally convinced. 
I'm convinced that this is not about human and angels marrying and bearing, bearing children. Why? Good question. Jesus himself, when asked about marriage in heaven, said this, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. His point being that angels cannot bear children with humans or other angels at all. If they could, can I tell you something? That since the fall, Satan's horde would have been busy producing offspring in an attempt to fight God, which he couldn't have done, but he would have been trying real hard. He would have been trying to populate a people that could overthrow heaven. But both groups, in my opinion, referred to here as sons of God and daughters of men are human, mankind. Now, yes, sometimes we exalt some parts of humanity over other parts. And sometimes things happen and reputations grow. And Cain's line contained fallen ones. And as they had left the presence of God, as we've already read, and with all of we read their advances and their technologies and the things they did, I believe they were considered heroes and famous ones. Now remember what we've been led through in the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There is some difference of opinion among commentators as which line then is referred to as sons of God, Cain or Seth, and which one is daughters of men, Cain or Seth. And I will tell you honestly, and we have a seminary head former here, I will tell you that you could argue it either way understandably, as long as you just kind of keep the lines together either way. But here's what I say. I'm inclined to believe that the sons of God to be a moniker given to men in the reputation of the Canaanites. They sought to make a name for themselves as gods. Why? Because that's what Satan has always tried to do. They sought to make a name for themselves, to be famous ones, to be giants. And yet, what did God call us? Mankind. Adam. A special creation. A people. Mankind. I think the Canaanites called themselves famous ones. Gods, if you will. Men of renown. Heroes in their own story. And the line of Seth, though, through Enoch, were famous for calling on the name of the Lord. That's what they were famous for. Now, you could argue which was the sons of God and which were the daughters of men, vice versa, either way. But the key is that those who left the presence of the Lord in Cain's line enticed those who called on the name of the Lord in Seth's line, seeking to destroy the image of God. And that's always been the work of the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And the result is often true that when we give our heart to someone who does not share our passion for God, we are just a step away from failing to give the Lord our worship and affection. And in that unequally yoked home, 
In a divided home, from a divided heart, we are led to divide our path. You remember what happened when Assyria carried away Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity? They, they replaced the ones that they took into captivity out of Israel. They replaced them with people from other lands. And as they'd taken many away and they'd left some behind and they brought others in, Second Kings seventeen twenty four says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Kutah and Ava and Hamat and, and Sepharvaim and settled them in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And then listen to this, verse 41 says, They feared the Lord but also served idols. And still today, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. You see what happens when we divide our heart among worshipers of God and non-worshipers of God? Oh, they worship the Lord, but they worship their idols. And then their children and their grandchildren continue to do it. And so from that divided home came the Samaritan people in Jesus' day that were still divided and confused. Can we relate to living in a world where people say they know God, but they worship worldly understandings at the same time? So those generations did not continue in their faith. Their hearts turned family by family. And so here God says, my spirit, write it down, will not remain. Even after the fall of man, God's grace was what allowed this long lifespan. And now God is saying, no more. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other so that they don't do what you want. So out from the presence of God, now stay with me because we really don't understand Genesis 6 if we don't understand this. Out from the presence of God, the Canaanites had become famous. They were giants. Now, the word does mean giants, and it's translated giants, but it also means fallen ones. And certainly while there could have been over short generations some genetic change, yet remember, we are only seven generations away from Adam. And they have all been committed to filling the earth. And the line of Seth was committed to calling on the name of the Lord while the line of Cain on leaving the presence of the Lord. And as is often the case, the people that are running from God are often more committed to evangelism than those of us who are following God. Is that a true statement? Ouch is fine. You can just say ouch. So whether by size or by reputation or by their fallen nature, there were giants. And God says, my spirit will not remain because they are what? Corrupt. It's not what I meant for them to be. They're corrupt. That, that word is the word basar and it, and it means flesh. It means sacrificial meat. 
these who had been made just a little lower than God, they had been made to glorify God, had become altogether fleshly, not at all holy. And instead they had sacrificed, they had set themselves apart from God, the God who made them for those purposes. And they had they had fully deviated from their created purpose to walk with God in relationship with God. If there's not anything else you see in these early chapters, it's that we were made to walk with God. And God desires for us to walk with him. And the whole of scripture is telling us that truth. And it says, sadly, when the Lord saw that this human wickedness was widespread. Write that down. Wickedness was widespread. There in verse 5. Man, God had been patient. But it says that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil every third Thursday. Is that what it, is that what it says? What does it say? It says all the time. It doesn't take long to deviate. You know, Dennis, if you're three degrees off, you're going to miss a 12-foot putt. It doesn't take long. The letters of the apostles written in the first century addressed a deviation of true theology in just one generation after the ascension of Christ and the creation of the church. And so on earth, here we are seven generations and the offspring of God have compromised with the offspring of rebellion. And it says two words, God saw. God knows. Have you in your prayer time anytime recently said, Lord, do you see this? Listen, God saw. And I will say God allowed it to play out. Every inclination, nothing but evil all the time. Proverbs six sixteen to 19 says that God hates seven things and it lists it there as arrogance and lying, innocent bloodshed, scheming hearts, feet running to evil, false testimony, and stirring up trouble between brothers. God hates those seven things. Do they sound familiar? And so for God to be proven just, he had to allow what he knew would be inevitable to play out and prove itself. And then it says right down, the Lord regretted in grief. These are sad words. The sadness was increased by the fact that these who had turned to their own way couldn't simply be satisfied with going away. They wanted to take as many with them as they could. That's the work of the evil one. He wants to be a God and he wants the world to worship him and he seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And so they had certainly obeyed the command to be fruitful, but their tree was corrupt and they were fruitful in advancing evil on the earth. I don't know about you, but when I read some of these things, I wonder, well, why was God deeply grieved? You know why God was deeply grieved? Because he deeply loved. The depth of God's love is always 
in the lengths he is willing to go to to make things right. And from a grieving heart, the Lord said, I regret that I made them. Yes, God knew we would do this, but it's no less regrettable. It's no less hurtful. Does God love us? Yes. Does God still desire relationship with people who will walk with him? Yes. Yes, he does. And so into this seventh generation with widespread wickedness and the followers of God literally dying away. So comes right down number two, the pronouncement of consequences. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Now stop there for a minute. The way of Cain and his offspring is one of open self-worship. Self-removal from the presence of God gives birth and life and generation to the evil that brings the flood. Each generation had gotten further away, as deviation does. 20th century pastor R.G. Lee, some of you know his name. He was famous. He was pastor of uh, Bellevue Baptist in Memphis. But he preached one message over 1,200 times. And it was about Ahab and Jezebel and God's pronouncement that came true after their deviation that they would die, and Ahab died three years later, but Jezebel didn't die for 20 years. Sometimes we get away from that and we get further down the road and we think, well, maybe that's not going to happen. But remember, the wages of sin is death. And R.G. Lee, in that message that he preached over 1,200 times in his life, said, payday someday. said, God said it and it was done. He said, the judgment of God has leaden shoes moving slowly, but he has iron hands that crush completely. God pronounces judgment on the world. Now, this pronouncement of judgment, we will find out next week that it doesn't come true for 120 years. And as Noah is preaching and he is building, I'm sure the laughs increased. What do you mean it's going to flood? It's never flooded. It's never rained. What are you talking about? Can you get that? out of my driveway? Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote this called The Debt. This is the price I pay just for one riotous day, years of regret and of grief and sorrow without relief. Suffer it, I will, my friends. Suffer it until the end, until the grave shall give relief. Small was the thing I bought. Small was the thing at best. Small was the debt I thought, but oh God, the interest... That's it, isn't it? What was God grieving? It's the same thing that was in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 1, 
when it says, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. This is what Paul was saying in Romans 1 verse 18 when he says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that we don't know the truth. We suppress the truth. And what is the truth? The Lord is coming. And days are wicked. They've always been, haven't they? And certainly the Lord is coming. And he is coming any day. And so what do we say? Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. But listen, we also say, come to Jesus. Whoever will, whoever's hungry, whoever's thirsty, whoever's weary, come. Those are the twofold message of the last chapter of the Bible is, come, Lord Jesus, but whosoever will may come. And you're like, okay, you're preaching about judgment. Get on with it. It's not the way I see the passage. Because judgment is coming. However, there is a man. Noah. Oh my goodness. Look at verse 8 with me and and following. We're not going to read all of this chapter. I regret that I made them Noah, however. I regret that I made them, but Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. And these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. And God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, I decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it with pitch inside and out. Look at verse 17. Understand this. I'm bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven and the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. The Lord regretted that he made men. However, Noah, listen to me. I want to be a however. I want to be a however of God. I can't describe it any other way than that, but it's what has driven me all my life. And I'm not saying I got it right, but it is what drives me. 
Everyone was divided. However, go forth. That's, that's, no one recognized God's right to rule. However, go forth. People were hell-bent on destruction. However, go forth. People were self-worshippers. However, go forth. I want to be a however in the story. In the story of God, I want there to be a however attached to my name. Noah found favor with the Lord. In wicked days like this, we need a man and a woman, a student, a boy, a girl, a family. No one really knows their name, but God invites them into his plan. That could be you. Why Noah? It just simply says he was righteous and blameless. Does not say he was faultless. Verse 9 says he's a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. And so the revelation of God comes to Noah. But here's the thing. Noah was already walking with God. Noah had already heard, if you will, the gospel of worshiping God. It had been passed down. Noah had heard it from his father, who heard it from his grandfather, who heard it from his great-grandfather, and on and on, that is, we call on the name of the Lord. That's what's been passed down in my family is we call on the name of the Lord. We don't do things like that in our house. We already know that our righteousness is like trying to cover our nakedness with fig leaves. That's what we saw. We are not sinless, but we can be blameless. And the covering of our sin comes only through being covered by the blood of a sacrifice. All the way back to the beginning. Interestingly, in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the days of Noah, comparing them to the days of the end. And he says that in Noah's days, I mean, everybody was just focused on personal pleasure. Uh, Matthew 24, 37 to 39, he, he talks about they're just going out and eating and drinking and being happy and just doing what they, personal pleasure. And in those kinds of days, what was Noah doing? He was walking with God. He was hearing God. He was joining God. That's what he was doing. What is that? It's worship. Worship, remember, is an expression of adoration to the object of our affection. That's worship. And God is always at work. And if we are walking with God, then he reveals to us what he is doing in your workplace, on your block, in your family. And he reveals what he is doing. And when he reveals what he is doing, we have to make a decision whether or not to join him. It's not that God is not going to do what God's going to do. The question is, are we getting in on it? And so verse 13, it says, God said, I have decided. God is not looking for our input. He's looking for our joining what he is doing. The question is, what will we decide? I have decided. What is it that God wants from Noah? Write that question down. What is it that God wants from Noah? 
And here's the interesting thing. You've probably already found this out. Sometimes it took me a little while to find this out. God may not tell us the whole story. But he reveals to us what we need to know right now. Right? And if you read down through the rest of this chapter that we're not going to read today, but if you read down through it, you see so many times, and you can count them for yourselves when God says, you will and I will. You will make and you will make and you will do and I will. And we have to focus on what God says you will do and let God take care of the God stuff. A revelation is a pronouncement, but it is also an invitation to life. It is an invitation to walk with him. And so God's instruction simply requires us understanding what's been revealed and nothing more. Understand the situation that's been revealed to God. God gives instructions to Noah. I'm going to make it flood the earth and I'm going to kill everybody. Now think of all the questions Noah could have asked. What's rain? How are you going to flood the whole earth? How are the animals going to get here? What are we going to do after that? God's revelation is an invitation and it requires faith and obedience, not understanding of all the stuff that's outside the revelation. It requires, write this down, faith and adjustment. Faith and adjustment. That's what Blackaby said. We heard what God said. Um, But wait a minute, Lord. Well, that means that I'm going to have to do this and this, and I'm going to have to give up that. I don't know if I believe all of this. And we have this long list of whatabouts, don't we? And often it is in chasing the whatabouts that we fail to move forward with what God has told us, with what God has said to do. And sometimes we parents understand that there isn't an explanation that our children will understand. And you find yourself saying what you would never say. And that is because I said so. And what we're asking from our children is faith and adjustment. I can't explain it to you. Just do what I said. And so Noah's got to go to the hardware store. And he's got to go to the lumber mill and he's got to get some measuring tape. I hear you, Lord, but I don't understand all of this. And God says there in verse 17, I love it because you, you see all of this unspoken stuff. And he says, understand this. Did you see that? Understand this. I am bringing a flood. Do you understand that? I'm not asking if you understand how. Do you understand that? I'm going to destroy every creature. Do you understand that? You don't understand how. You don't understand why. But do you understand that? And then verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, with your sons, your wife, And your son's wives. 
In the midst of the revelation of judgment, there is always an invitation to salvation. An invitation to life. Because salvation comes by faith before sight. This is a revelation invitation to life. Immediately, I think of 2 Corinthians 5. That when we respond by faith to the invitation to life, he gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Do you know what walking around money is? Yeah, I know we're getting into more and more a cashless society, but I think because I never had much money, I always want some money in my pocket. I want walking around money. It's not the whole thing, but it gets us around until the full payment comes. You understand when we receive Jesus Christ, we don't get the whole thing, but we get some walking around money in the person of the Holy Spirit that will get us there until my faith becomes sight. Somebody. Faith is evident then by action. Now we'll talk about this more next week and we'll see this. Noah preached and he worked on the ark for 120 years. Now listen, don't miss this. Noah was 600 when the flood came. He was 500 when he started having children. Took 120 years to build the ark. That means his family, part of the promise, came 20 years after the revelation. You with me? Noah received the promise and accepted the offer of life and began his work and began his preaching in action and in message. And then God began to make it sight piece by piece. It hadn't rained, but he was building an ark. No animals were showing up, but he was building an ark. Oh, and then his wife became pregnant. And then again, and then again. And then his sons grew up and fell in love and got wives. You see, it's all coming together. And God is good. And he gives us what we need piece by piece. And the piece by piece is just walking around money. Because real life is coming. In that message, payday someday, R.G. Lee closes the sermon by saying this. The only way for a man or a woman to escape the sinner's payday on earth and in hell is through Christ Jesus who took our place on the cross. He became for all sinners... That which God must judge that sinners through faith in Christ might become all that God cannot judge. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation in the oldest past and all things have been made new. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that in Christ God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God because he made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Yes. Tell the world that the Lord is coming and then invite them to life. Would you pray with me? Yes, the Lord is coming. And yes, judgment is with him. But there is an invitation to life. You may be watching online. You may be here live today. And you hear this and you know this is true. And so could you right there where you are, could you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died for me and I believe you have paid for my sin. And so by faith, I receive the offer of life. Thank you for the offer. Thank you for the provision. We're going to stand in a moment and we're going to sing. We're going to worship. I'll give instruction in a minute. There's a time in a a few moments when we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. But this is a time to worship. We'll have elders here. If you need to come and say, I've prayed to receive Christ, then we'd invite you to come. If you'd like to be a church member here, come and be a part of what we're doing. If you'd like to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, come. Maybe you've got somebody on your heart that is headlong on the path to destruction and judgment and you need to pray for them. Maybe you need to come and find a place or kneel where you are.